Let's read together Genesis 14, verse 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said... Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to who Melchizedek is. So I want to say this from the outset. The Bible doesn't tell us. I have opinions, but the Bible doesn't tell us who this is. It just says he's high pri- or he's the priest of El Elyon, God Most High. Now, um, just for your benefit, on the paper, I wrote El Elyon in Hebrew so you could see that it's not El, El, as in the same prefix, the same word. It's two different words. El is that top little X-looking thing, and you read Hebrew from right to left. El is that top little X-looking thing, and the weird uh, squiggly line that kind of goes vertical. And then uh, Elyon is underneath. And it's not an X. I want you to take note of that. Because in English, when we say El Elyon, when we repeat Hebrew out loud and we spell it phonetically, it looks like we're saying God, God, Yon. It's not what we're saying. That will be important in a few minutes. I just want to bring your attention to that. I also want to bring your attention to the fact that anybody who claims to have certain understanding of who exactly Melchizedek is, is stretching their theology. We don't have an exact. The Bible doesn't say this exactly is who he is. While I've got some speculation, and I think that this uh, might be someone in particular that comes to mind, um, I'm not going to tell you that until lunch. Have fun. So, let's dive in to the text. Um, Before we dive in, actually, first, the kings of uh, the kingdoms of men are at war here. And Lot and Abram have separated. So Lot is Abram's nephew. And Lot has come with Abram from the Chaldeans to Canaan. 
And he's come with them, and they got there, and they're both really wealthy. Both Lot has a ton of sheep and a ton of servants, and they've got a lot of money. There's a lot, a lot has a lot, and there's a lot of stuff. And they come, and they see the Jordan River, and they see the land, and Abram sees that the shepherds are fighting over pasture land. Abram says, listen, we are followers of Yahweh. We don't need to be fighting with each other. We need to be worshiping the Lord together and in agreement with each other. So we don't, we don't need to be fighting. We need to be in agreement. So we, no strife. So let's d- separate ourselves from strife and send you over where you want to go and I'll stay here. So they divide and they separate. Abraham parts from Lot so that there would be no strife between them. That's in chapter 13, verse 8. Now, Lot gets to choose where he goes. And he chooses to make a life close to the cities. He chooses to make a life close to the cities of men who are ruled by kings, who have a lot of stuff. He chooses to live by a city. Now, I grew up in a city. I grew up in a big city. Baltimore, Maryland is a big city, and I grew up in a suburb of Baltimore called Towson. Well, correction, I went to high school in a suburb of Baltimore called Towson. Before that, I was in New Orleans, Louisiana, bigger than Baltimore. So I grew up in cities. When I got married, we moved to a city for two years and then moved here. This is not a city. This is almost not a town. I love you. This is almost not a town. In fact, when I drive to Lake Jackson to get food, I tell people I'm going into town. (laughs) Now, I understand that those of you who have grown up here and lived here your whole life know that this is a town and wild peach is the sticks. And out past Matagorda is the sticks. So this is a town because here we have a grocery store and a Bucky's. That makes us a town. And our own police force. That's four people. Fantastic. So, this, this is hardly a town, but I want you to understand, when we live here, we, we have come to love it. Here's why. It's quiet. It's not constant. I can sit on my porch and enjoy myself. I can breathe here. I grew up in the city. I know you can't do that there. I know that if you sit on your porch in the city, you are compelled to move. You are compelled to go and go and go. But in in this area, it's very quiet. And for a guy like me, who thinks constantly, it's nice. You see, I have these things in my head I call thought squirrels that like to run. And they'll just go. And if I don't settle, I have a hard time being able to concentrate on much of anything. So God saw fit to move me here partly because of my proclivity towards that. I think that Abraham was similar. That Abram was similar, that his mind raced. And as he saw strife, he went, oh, no, 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 no. 
we're arguing, and this is not good. Let's separate and get some space. Lot, you take whatever land you want. I'll take whatever's left. And so important was peace that he was willing to divide. Now, Lot wanted to live in the city. And there's a lot of good reasons to want to live in the city. There's grocery stores in the city. There's Starbucks's. There's places where you can get what you need quickly. There's a lot of good reasons. So Lot lives near a city. Just a note. The greatest leaders are often those who start away from everyone else. Greatest leaders are often those who start away from everyone else. So Lot moves towards the city where everybody is. It's crowded. He likes it there. Abram, on the other hand, lives off by himself. God gives him this massive area. And then Lot, living close to the city, falls victim to the circumstances of the city because the city suddenly gets captured. And Lot's around. and So he gets enslaved. That's what it means when it says, and they took Lot, the nephew of Abram. When it says that in chapter 14, it's saying he became a slave. He got captured by these other kings. A bunch of kings rose up to fight these other kings. And a war ensued, and Sodom was captured, and Lot gets captured with him. Now, Abraham, over here in the countryside, over in Brazoria, has 318 friends who are all trained fighting men, who are all his. And he goes, guys, got to go get my nephew back, because those kings with their small villages and their small armies have taken my nephew. So let's go. Get him. And Abraham shows himself, or Abram, rather, now he's not Abraham yet, he becomes Abraham later, but Abram shows us that he is a warrior and a general. That he is a leader of men, and he stands ready. So he goes and he defeats five kings. That's five cities of people. Five cities. Five of them. Abraham has 318 men, and he goes and divides his forces at night and takes back everything that has been taken and delivers it back to the king of Sodom and the other kings in the area. That is impressive. Five cities versus a country bumpkin and his 318 men. Bible emphasizes the 318, so you'll go, what? 318 versus five cities of people? Yes. And the Lord gave him victory. This is a warlord. Abram is a warrior. He is not some guy in a robe out in the middle of a field who just is kind of a sissy. This is a man with calloused hands, who knows what war is. So he rescues Lot. And then we come to this point here where he has returned. And this is where we pick up in the story. Verse 17. After Abram's return from the defeat of... I don't know how to say his name. I didn't look it up. But Chedorlomer. That guy. After his defeat of that guy and the kings who were with him. So he's the lead king and all the kings that were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet Abram 
at the Valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. Now, I want you to take note first that Sodom, the king of Sodom, must leave his kingdom to meet with Abram. Take note. He has to come out of his kingdom to meet with Abram. And they meet at the valley of Shavah. Now, that does, that does not, it is the king's valley. That's not what that translates to. In Hebrew, the valley of Shavah means level field. Level playing field. Equal ground. The king of Sodom, ruler of a city. Strong. Mighty king. Comes out of his city to meet with Abram on level ground. Now, there's a cool thing going on in Hebrew here with these parentheses. That is the king's valley. It doesn't specify which king owns that valley. It's an interesting play here because it's about to say Melchizedek shows up and he was the king of Salem. And then in parentheses, he was the priest of El Elyon. So I'm just bouncing off the Hebrew here and I want you to see that the king that's mentioned here is not man. This is the king's valley. The king. Level ground is his. When he brings Abram to meet with the king of Sodom, it's on level ground and it's his ground. It's his kingdom. It's his valley. Likewise, Christian, on this earth you stand on level ground with everyone else. Equally wicked. But owned by the king. The king of glory. And it doesn't matter if the guy in front of you is the president or some bum on the street. You've been brought to level valley before the king. You've been brought to a level playing field before the king. And you all stand equally in his gaze, desperate for him to redeem and rescue. So Abram goes out to meet this king on level ground. He does not subject himself to the king of Sodom. I want you to notice that too. Abram does not subject himself to the king of Sodom. He doesn't go to Sodom city. He doesn't go into the gates. He's not in Sodom's throne room giving Sodom all the treasure. He meets him outside his city on level playing field, on level ground. All of a sudden, worldly treasures are forsaken. They're all gone. They don't matter. All the stuff that the city has to offer, nothing. Why? Because they're in the valley of the kings. The king. They're in the king's valley. Nobody else. So Abram stands before this king and he talks to him. And before any talking is done, verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, we want to understand who Melchizedek is because we're in the book of Hebrews. Next week, we're going to go back to it. But we're in the book of Hebrews. And as we study the book of Hebrews, this character is going to show up. And Jesus is going to be called as a, a high priest from the line of Melchizedek. This guy. So, 
I'm going to read the name, translating the words in English. So here we go. Verse 18. And the righteous king, king of peace, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God of the upper room. The God of the uppermost chamber. Let me read it again. Translating. And the righteous king, king of peace, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God of the upper room. The God of the uppermost chamber. That's what those mean in English. So let's take a look at this incredible picture. The king of Sodom has to leave. He comes to meet Abram. And suddenly there's this king that shows up. Melchizedek. Now, just a couple things. When his name is mentioned, did you see parents mentioned? No. Did you see a genealogy? Did you see reference to future or past? No. He is without any substantiation as priest. This is rare. Whenever Aaron Aaron and his sons are listed as priests, there's always a genealogy. To validate them as priests. The Levitical priesthood, which you get in a couple books, it shows up, and and in that priesthood, they all have to have parents that match this genealogy, that bring them through. But here, Melchizedek doesn't have one. Without father or mother. So he's not mentioned that way. He just kind of shows up. And can you imagine being Abram? You're waiting for the king of Sodom and his group to show up. And they walk out to meet you, and all of a sudden, this other king shows up. I'm just saying, that's a little weird. Salem was not mentioned in the wars. This king was not mentioned in the wars. He has evidently stayed out of the conflict. And yet, here, in the level playing field, this guy shows up. And not only does he show up, but he shows up with a picnic basket. Bread and wine. I say picnic basket because to this point in Scripture, we didn't know about communion. We only had illusions of it. And now, all of a sudden, this guy shows up giving, evidently giving communion. Handing communion to Abram. So he shows up out of nowhere in the middle of a peace treaty talk. And he brings bread and wine. Isn't that like our God? Isn't that what He frequently does? You aren't expecting Him. You are uh, either successful or struggling. And you're planning a meeting with somebody. All of a sudden, He shows up. And it throws everything off, doesn't it? It's great and wonderful. But it throws everything off. And all of a sudden... You're going, I don't know what to do now. I, I had everything. Now I don't know what to do. And this is, this is the nature of God's interaction with humanity. Often it comes at times when we are not looking for it and not anxious for it. And yet, when it happens, the response that we have must be like Abram. To recognize the movement of God and to respond correctly by surrendering to Him. So, Abram suddenly runs into Melchizedek, the righteous king. If you want to break the word down, 
Melki means righteous. Zedek means, I mean, sorry, Melki means king. Zedek means righteous. So when you put Melchizedek, you've got righteous king. That's what you have. So that's, uh, that's the meaning of the phrase there. He's the righteous king, the king of peace. Salem meaning peace, but not Sabbath rest peace, which is what we would expect. Right, when we're meeting with God, we would expect Sabbath rest, especially after a victory like this. We would expect him to say, and he's the king of Sabbath. But instead he says, I'm the king of Salem, or Shalom, is the way that you've probably heard it said. This is the king of peace. But not just any peace, perfect peace. Complete soul peace. Peace uh, by way of the heart. So he is the king of of perfect soul peace. So he is the king of peace. And Abraham suddenly finds peace in this king's court. Remember, this king's court is an open field, a valley. Is there a greater throne room than to walk out and see nature? Is there a greater throne for God to sit on than what He has created? Have you ever taken time to just look out at some of the most mundane trees and, and sky? It can be a dreary, nasty day and it's still more beautiful than the most courtly of courtrooms. It's still more beautiful than anything we could conjure up in a room. Indeed, so beautiful is nature that, they, that that is the subject of the paintings of the majority of artwork. Either Jesus or nature. We look at the skies and God says, that's mine. And it's only a little bit of what I can do. We look at a mountain and he says, that's my footstool. That's not even, that's not even big enough for you to, to recognize it, it's not even big enough to hold me. It is a footstool. Have you ever hiked a mountain? Insane. God's valley brings more peace than the greatest of cities, than the greatest of the works of men. God's valley brings more peace than the greatest of the works of men. His level playing field and resting in His righteousness and in His holiness brings greater peace than anything the world offers. So Abram meets him in the valley and finds peace in his court. And he is priest of God Most High, El Elyon, or priest of God of the upper chamber, the upper room. This is, this is critical because look at what he does. He brings wine and bread to Abram. God, he's the priest of the God of the upper room. Now where did Jesus have the Last Supper? The upper room. The upper chamber. When Jesus sits before his disciples and he pulls out bread and wine, says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out for you, we read it every single week. When he does that, he is doing it as God of the upper room, and as our high priest. 
Genesis 14 points you to Passover feast with Jesus. You've got to be kidding me. God took that much effort to tell you about Jesus? You're on a level playing field. No one is greater. No one is lesser. You see the homeless guy on the street or the rich guy in the uh, huge tower. They are the same. Equally in need of redemption. Equally sinful before the eyes of God. Desperately in need of salvation. They are the same before God on this level playing field. And Melchizedek, the righteous king of peace, comes and breaks bread and, and wine for their souls on equal playing field, the righteous and the unrighteous, standing there before him. as the priest of the God of the upper room. And Jesus, thousands of years later, thousands of years later, stands before his disciples and breaks bread in an upper room and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. This is a picture of salvation. Oh, that you would simply trust in this priest and recognize that you are leveled before him. And yet, he has desired to redeem and rescue you. Only repent and believe in Jesus. How beautiful it is that God has done this. This priest of God most high priest of God, the upper room, he brings out the first communion recorded in Scripture. And what I think is funny is there's no... I don't know what would have happened. I don't know if Abraham... The Bible doesn't tell us Abraham looked at him and said, this is weird, why are you bringing me bread and wine? It doesn't, it doesn't tell us what Abram's response was to Melchizedek except to receive this. I want you to note, it also doesn't tell you what Thomas's response was at the Last Supper or what Nathaniel's response was, or what Andrew's response was. It focuses on a few key characters. So I just want you for a minute to put yourself as one of the 318 men standing near, near Abram. They're all probably still around. And Sodom and his, his guys are all there. King of Sodom and his guys are all there. And all of a sudden you've got this courtly two armies meeting to talk and to uh, negotiate terms here. And then all of a sudden this random priest king shows up. And somehow everyone knows he's king. Did you catch that? He doesn't announce himself. He doesn't come in with trumpets. He's just there, and everybody all of a sudden knows he's king. Weird. This is weird. I'll say it. This is a weird story. Jesus comes, comes to the disciples and breaks bread and wine this is my body broken for you. This blood poured out for you. And we get it because we've read the whole story. Or at least we've had somebody tell it to us. But if you were a disciple in that moment, you'd probably respond a little bit like, Peter, what's he talking about? Why is, someone's going to betray you. Who's going to betray you? You realize by that point in the story, Jesus has told them about eight times somebody's going to betray him. 
and they're still surprised. What? And they don't even bring it up. They don't even go, he says this all the time, just let it slide. You know, th- nothing. They're shocked. They ask him, who's going to betray him? And John asks them. So if you're one of the 318 men, this is weird, right? And yet, it is so profoundly beautiful to see God make atonement for a bunch of guys in a field. For a bunch of people who are not deserving by any stretch of the imagination. So he makes atonement for them. And then Jesus does the same in the upper room. He, he gives them communion for the first time. And then he blesses here in Melchizedek. He blesses them. So in verse 19, he says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So note the blessing. Blessed be Abram by God of the upper room or the upper chamber, God most high, who owns everything. You're in his valley. He owns everything. This is his. All of it's his. Sodom thinks he owns stuff. God owns it. The city thinks they own stuff. God owns it. The field thinks they own stuff. God owns it. Abram thinks that those are his 318 men. No, they're God's. Everything is God's. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So he says, blessed is Abraham. Great, blessed is Abram. And then he immediately takes Abram out of the picture and talks about God most high. God owns everything, and God is the one who's delivered the enemies into your hands. Indeed, Christian, this is the way that we understand things that happen on this earth. It's all owned by God, and when good things happen, they are by God's hand, and when bad things happen, they are by God's hand. God is in ultimate control of everything. And when we wrap our minds around the working of God's hands, we can understand why He is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Because He is a gracious God who should have wiped out mankind at the outset, but instead chose to be gracious and kind and merciful and you draw breath because He is patient and loving. Because that is His defining character trait. Love. Towards the ant. So, He owns everything. He blesses Abram. And by blessing Abram, God is blessed. When Christians, when you are given things to the Lord, you are to turn them into blessing and exaltation of God. When we are faithful to bless the Lord, He is glorified. And when we are blessed by Him, He is glorified. Either way, He is glorified. You get the opportunity to joy and revel in His glory. So then Abram here, at the end of verse 20, gives him a tenth of everything. Now, this is the first mention of a tenth being given And this is not where most pastors and preachers and theologians draw the tithe. I just want you to understand that. 
This is not the theological argument for the time. I want you to get that first. That's the first thing to say. New Testament talks about giving. We're going to talk about giving just for a brief moment so that I can explain why this is not a theological argument for time. This, the New Testament talks about giving as a Christian. It says, give open-handedly, give generously, give with charity, give with joy, give lots, give away as often as you can because it's rejoicing to do so. This is who you are as a Christian, is one who lives open-handed life, giving where the Lord tells you. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a tithe. This is where they got the idea of bringing 10% of everything that you earned into the storehouse of Israel. So the tithe in Israel was about 27.2%. If you want to claim a tithe theologically, then you should include your tax payments, because that's part of what the tithe was. And you should include 10% of your income going to the storehouse, which... Many people, I understand, a lot of people argue that the church is the storehouse. I get that. I understand that argument. I'm not making that argument. I think you should be giving generously and extravagantly and live open-handedly because it's better for your soul and it's what we're commanded to do in the New Testament. But 27%, you were supposed to give something like 15% to the, or something like 12% to the government-run uh, uh, state. You were supposed to give something like 7% to the... I'm way over already. 10% went to the storehouse, and then you divided the rest between the state and the temple priests, basically. And then there was alms for poor that you were supposed to give to. So there were these four different places you're supposed to give your tithe. It added up to about 27% of your income. If you want to tithe as a Christian, and you want to obey the Old Testament law of a tithe, then 10% ought to go to one place. If you think it's the church, great. Let the Holy Spirit convict you in that. Pray, read your Bible. He tells you. Um, if you think it's church, great. So 10% goes somewhere, and then the rest, you need to factor in your taxes, and you need to factor in giving to a priest, and you need to factor in giving to uh, alms to the poor. You need to factor in all those things as well. About 27% of your income with, a, with you know, 10% taken off. If you want to hold to a tithe, that's the way to do it. Now, all that said, if you are wondering about giving, 10% is a good place to start. It is not the end of giving. 10% is a good place to start. 10% to your church is a good place to start. It's a good idea to support your church. It's good for you. You benefit from it. At least I think you do, because you're here. We've got air conditioning. It's nice, right? We do have to pay rent, that kind of thing. You, so you benefit from contributing to it. The money that you give to the church, we as leadership and as a church body, in our members' meetings and things, we, we talk about how we spend the money, where we spend the money, and we want to be a giving church. So we give out a lot of money to other ministries, to other places. And it's on purpose. And a good church ought to do that. So if you want to give 10% to your church, great place to start. But don't stop there. Make this a game. The Bible says, take unrighteous worldly mammon and use it for eternal good. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, take unrighteous worldly mammon, that's money, and use it for eternal good. 
Take what the world gives you and use it for the good of the kingdom. So your money, your time, your energy, all of that needs to be used for the good of the kingdom. And the more you can give, the better you will feel, the better you will be, the better person you will be, the stronger your kingdom reward will be. So, in full transparency, my wife and I give 10% off the top to the church. Then we give to multiple other ministries in addition to that. And I will promise you this. If you start at 10% and then you give wherever the Lord calls you with an open hand, you will find that the Lord will keep you safe. Because that's what usually is the problem, right? We feel like we can't give because we're afraid we're we're not going to be safe, we're not being wise. Look, if you are listening to the Lord and He encourages you to give somewhere, give. Give boldly. Give recklessly. Because He's God and it's all His anyway. Okay, that's enough about giving. Told you, I've told you countless times at this church, we're only going to talk about giving when it shows up in Scripture. Showed up. There it was. So now we're moving on. Are you ready? Are you, are you re- I need a nod or something for somebody. Are you ready? Because I can stick on it. You want me, I can stay there. I mean, um, thank you, Joshua. Thank you, buddy. Um, verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So the king of Sodom tries to negotiate with Abraham, saying, Hey, I want your 318 fighting men. You have all the golden stuff. Abram sees this as a bad deal. And he says, No, I'm not doing that keeping all my people. You can have all the wealth. I don't want any of it. And Abram responds. But look at Abram's response. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Yahweh, the God of the upper room, possessor of heaven and earth. Now that is one way to start a response. That just silences everything. Hey, let's make a deal. We'll trade. I'll trade you my brand new car for all of your fleet of cars. Let's make that trade. Let's make that trade. And the guy looks at you and goes, I have lifted up my hand to the God most high, ruler and creator of all things, who owns everything. I'm saying if I'm in that meeting, I'm quiet. You you come with that kind of authority, I'm quiet. So he says that to him, and then there in verse 23 says, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours least you should say I have made Abram rich I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me let the others have their share so Abram says you don't get to give me anything you see Sodom was trying to make a trade get something more out of the bargain I want your men You take your things. Clearly, these 318 fighting men are pretty intense. I want them. You take your things. And Abram responds with, I want nothing from you. And by the way, this is all God's. And I serve him. He comes with this authority that this belongs to the Lord. Christian, hear me. You have the same authority. When someone tries to cheat or swindle or take something that's yours, when someone tries to manipulate or steal from you, when someone offers you a gift that might be inappropriate, 
that might not be something you should take that would put you as subservient to them. When someone tries to manipulate or rule over you, you have the power to look at them and say, I serve a holy God. You can do whatever you want, but I am taking nothing from you. And you have the authority to claim that king as Lord over your life. Listen, this king, Melchizedek, this picture of Jesus, he receives offerings, he is eternal, he came before the law. The law hasn't even been laid down yet. Abraham has not even been given been given the covenants yet. He's just following the Lord. This is all before the law. Jesus Christ stands as our high priest before the Lord, above the law, and beyond the law. And I say that for this reason. The reason I'm pointing out that it's before the law is because Jesus Christ is above and beyond the law. And you don't have to be a Jew to know Jesus. And you don't have to submit to the Old Testament law to know Jesus. He has broken His body and poured out His blood for your soul. A Gentile doesn't know Him, didn't know Him. But guess what? Melchizedek came to Abraham before the covenants were given. Before the people of Israel are even established as a star in the sky. So likewise, Jesus stands, our great high priest, before the Lord, offering us His body and His blood poured out on our behalf that we would know Him. Oh, what glorious grace this is that brings us peace, that covers us. What glorious grace it is that we can stand before God the Father in worship. What glorious grace this is that we can love Him and rejoice. He is a great and good King who has rescued and redeemed us and saved us for His glory and for His name. And brother, sister, you have His authority over you when you face the trials of this world, and when the kings and the cities of this world demand your affection, respond as Abraham and say, No, this is my king, this is my Lord, this is my priest, and I will follow him. Even if things look like they might go better for you by behaving and living in the city with the people and living like the culture and living the way the world wants you to live even if it looks like it might be better that way. Trust the Lord, the great high priest. Follow hard after him and know him well.